you would turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Hebrews chapter 7 as we conclude our time in this chapter. Uh, we've spent a few weeks now looking at Hebrews 7. And if you've been with us, you know that the point the writer of Hebrews has been making is that uh, Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, he's compared Jesus to the old system of priesthood, the Levitical system from the Old Testament, and how that system was put in place by God for a purpose, but ultimately was insufficient to save. And it pointed us forward to Jesus Christ, who is entirely sufficient to save, because He is our great high priest who offers us a better hope. And so today we're going to be looking at Hebrews 7, verses 20-28, through 28, but just to pick back up in the context, I'm going to start at verse 18, remembering that uh, the writer here is comparing uh, this great priesthood of Jesus to this old system. And so he, as he does that, he's pointing us towards the glory of Christ. And so out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, remembering this is the holy inspired Word of God, and this is what God says. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank You for our great High Priest, our Lord Jesus. We thank You that we can draw near to You through Him. I pray, God, that that truth would transform us, that we would better understand it today. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who, who doesn't fully understand why it's so significant that Jesus is our High Priest. For any who's yet to bow their knee to the cross, who's yet to confess Christ as Lord, God, I pray You would do a work in their heart, in all of our hearts, as we study Your Word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. A few years ago, our dishwasher uh, stopped working. We had worked on it multiple times and it just gave out, so uh, I went to buy a new dishwasher. And one of the things I was looking for was something that had a good warranty, a good guarantee. And so uh, I found a dishwasher that had on it a big sticker that said, a two-year unlimited warranty. I thought, well, that sounds good to me. In our house, uh, two years is probably a normal house's ten years worth of dishes because we do quite a bit. And so I thought, that'd be great. So we get the dishwasher, we put it in, everything worked just fine. But then, uh, less than a year into this new dishwasher, I walked in the kitchen one day, and uh, this is when we had some different flooring in there, uh, and, and it was a, a floating floor. And that day, it was literally a floating floor because the dishwasher had just been pumping gallon after gallon after gallon of water into our kitchen uh, underneath the floor and just completely destroyed the floor, destroyed some of our cabinets. But as I saw that and as we started cleaning it up and as we were talking to the insurance company, I kept thinking, well, I'm excited that we bought one with an unlimited warranty for two years. And so into that process, I called the number that was on that big sticker and after being transferred from one place to another, and one country to another, and one person to another, I learned that there are limits to unlimited warranties. Now you're probably familiar with this. You check the fine print, you go through the system, and you find that many warranties and guarantees aren't very much of a guarantee at all. In fact, oftentimes now when I'm at a store and I buy something that you can uh, that can break, they often will try to sell you an extended warranty, an extended guarantee. And I often think the only thing that's really guaranteed to do is to make you more money by selling it to me. Because so often these things don't hold up. So often warranties and guarantees, they, they don't really do what they say they will do. In fact, we become rather cynical when we think of the idea sometimes about warranties and guarantees. But as we come to Hebrews chapter 7, we're reminded that there is indeed a guarantee that is guaranteed. And we're reminded that there is something sure, something steadfast, something that is not limited, something that will not expire. And it's the guarantee, it's the assurance we can have in our faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this guarantee, it is this guarantor, that the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of in these closing verses of Hebrews 7. So we're going to walk through this, and I pray we'll see what a glorious thing it is that Jesus indeed is our guarantee. Which is the first point there in your outline. Uh, Jesus is our guarantee. Now the writer writes in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's always important to understand what, what the this is. What, what is this that makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant? Well, he's referring back to this messianic psalm, to Psalm 110 that's been quoted often in the writer of Hebrews' argument. It's that psalm where we read Melchizedek's name. The only other time in the Old Testament we see that name appear. And, and it's there because God is pointing us forward to Jesus Christ and to the eternal nature of Jesus. It's there that we're reminded of this oath and this promise that God has made. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. This is what 
we have as a guarantee. And so you follow through the arguments, right? The, the writer's argument here. Hey, he's basically established that the Levitical priesthood was insufficient, but it was pointing us forward to something greater. And now we have Jesus who is greater. And now we have this promise, this oath that's been established, and this priesthood that's been established by the Word of God. See, in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests became priests because of their bloodline. So if you were born into the family of Levi, that qualified you then to serve as a priest. Their qualification was their bloodline. But what God's established in His Word is that there is a greater priesthood, this great high priest Jesus, who comes not from the bloodline of Levi, but comes through the very Word of God. And the encouragement to us is that God's Word is always true. You may remember a few weeks ago when we were walking through Hebrews 6.18, we talked about how God, His Word is true and His Word is unchanging. That God cannot lie. God never lies. I gave the example of how we so often lie and we hide the truth and twist the truth. And I kind of walked through that example of how you know, even many times when we come to church, we lie. You know, People ask us how we're doing and we say we're fine when we're really not fine. And it was interesting, after that sermon, I went up and asked somebody how they were doing, and they said, I'm fine. I'm really fine. I really, really am fine. I'm not lying to you. But, but we're kind of prone just to say that. Well, everything's good. Everything's fine. Even when it's not. Many times, we, we don't really tell the truth, even when we're not intentionally trying to deceive. But we have this picture of God as one who it is impossible for Him to be dishonest. It is impossible for him to lie, and it is impossible for him to change. And so when he gives his word, when he gives his oath, when he gives his promise, it is a guaranteed guarantee. And that is something, friend, that we should rejoice in. Especially in a world where there are so many things that are not guaranteed. And so the writer here is saying we can have confidence in our faith. We can have assurance in our salvation. We can trust that God will not forsake us and will not abandon us because we have a guaranteed guarantee. And it comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is significant because it reminds us that, that this covenant we have with God, this relationship we have with God, it is completely dependent on God. He is the one who guarantees it. And that should comfort us because if the guarantee was up to us, well, that wouldn't be much of a guarantee. Because we struggle in our faith. We wrestle with many doubts. We fail often. We succumb to temptation. If this guarantee was dependent on us, then it wouldn't be much of a guarantee. But here the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is the one who is the great high priest. He is the one who guarantees this guarantee. And he goes on to tell us, not only is Jesus our guarantee, but point two, Jesus is our permanent guarantee. The word there used for guarantor is only used once in the entire New Testament. This is the only place we find it, but it was a, 
an often used word in this culture in this time because it referred to a term that would appear on legal documents. A guarantor was the one who would offer security in some type of transaction or deal. So for example, uh, let's say you went into a land transaction with a person. And you made a contract with them, an arrangement with them where you were going to pay so much money or give so many goods in exchange for this land. And this person selling the land, that they needed something more than your word, more than this contract. They needed to know that they were going to get paid. And so you would go out and you would find a guarantor. A guarantor would be the security for this deal. A guarantor was the guarantee that if you did not do what you said you would do, they would take care of it. If you fell short of your obligations, they would come and they would pay what was owed. A guarantor would put up their own material possessions and at times their own life as a guarantee that this deal would go through. Can you see the picture the writer here is using and telling us that Jesus is our guarantor. That Jesus is our security. He's saying that our, our salvation, that, that our covenant with God, it, it's not just resting on us. It is guaranteed by Jesus Christ. He's our security. You're not your security. You wake up some mornings, and you might not feel very saved. Some of the thoughts that go through your head and mine, you, you might not feel very secure in your salvation. And some of the things that we say, some of the things that we do, when we vow we will never do this again, oh, I'll never do this, I'll never do this, only to find ourselves doing this and more. If our security was based on how we felt we wouldn't be very secure. The Word of God gives us a promise. And the Word of God gives us an oath from God Himself. He is the one who secures our salvation. Therefore, it cannot be lost. And Jesus says this in so many ways at so many times. For example, in John chapter 10, verse 27, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Did you see the riches of what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that when we follow Him, we are in His hand, and no one, nothing can snatch us out of the grip of Jesus Christ. I've used the example before that many of you have experienced. Perhaps you've You've been in a crowded place with a young child or beside a busy road with a young child and so you, you hold that child's hand. That's what you do because you're keeping them from danger. You're, you're keeping them from running away and getting lost and all the things that could happen if they go into that busy street. You're, you're holding on to them. You don't loosen your grip when they get closer to danger. What do you do? You, you squeeze tighter. And oftentimes, what is that child doing? Just <laughs> fall into the ground and you're dragging. They're just trying to get out of that grip. And so what do you do? You, you squeeze that much tighter. You hold that much firmer. Friends, do you see the picture there? That, that Jesus is our security. That Jesus is our guarantor because His grip is tighter than yours and mine. 
and He will never let us go. We are His sheep and we know His voice and we will never perish. He says He gives us eternal life. That eternal life, it begins the moment you confess Christ as Lord. If you are a follower of Jesus today, your eternal life has already started. You will live forever with Christ. And He will hold you and I in His grip. This is why Paul could confidently write in Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. He will not pull away from you. He holds you firmly in His grip. And He does this forever. He's our permanent guarantee. And that arrangement in the ancient world, that arrangement with a guarantor was only guaranteed as long as there was a guarantor. But the question came, well, what would happen if something happened to the guarantor? So, say for example, you were the guarantor and you said, well, well, I will put up my possessions to make sure this deal goes through and then some great calamity happened to you and you lost everything. Well, you're not much of a guarantor then, are you? Or even worse, let's say that, that, that you put up your very life and everything you had and said, I'll, I'll be the guarantor of this deal, and then you die prematurely. Well, then there's no security. There's no guarantee. But notice what the writer here says. Jesus is our perfect guarantor because Jesus lives forever. He is a guaranteed guarantee. He is always and forever alive Verse 21 says that He is a priest forever. So this means that, that our faith can be secure if our faith rests in Jesus. He's our permanent guarantee. Not just that, point three. Uh, Jesus is our permanent guarantee who always intercedes for us. And notice the riches here we have in verse 25. Uh, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. I mean, just, just consider the riches in that one, that one verse. Consequently. But because of. Because of what? Because Jesus is the great High Priest who lives forever. Not, not because of your faithlessness or because of your inconsistencies, but because of the permanence of who Christ is. Consequently, because of these things, He is able to save to the uttermost. That's a word we don't use so often, but it means completely and to the end. And so Jesus is able to save us entirely, completely. What we often think of salvation as something in the past tense. When, when I was... 17 years old, I was a freshman in college and I became a Christian. I was saved. And that's true for me. But in the New Testament, we see salvation is referred to in the past, present, and future. So I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. It is this ongoing work of salvation 
by Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. And so here we're reminded that He's able to save to the uttermost, perfectly, presently. He's able to do these things. And then He says, through to those who draw near to God through Him. We're reminded that Jesus is the only way to God. That there's no other means through which we can draw near to God. And that's obviously a very unpolitically correct statement in our culture. It's a very offensive statement to many. But friends, it's the truth of what God's Word says. Jesus says of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. There's no other means through which we can draw near to God except through our great High Priest Jesus Christ because He's the great High Priest. And so consider that. And when you think about your neighbor, your, your coworker, your relative, your friend, who may be a very religious person, a very spiritual person, but they don't know Jesus. Consider that when you watch the news and you see reports of people around the world and you see million upon millions of people who are worshiping false gods. Consider that as you drive through communities here in Kentucky and you will see places of worship that are worshiping false gods that they're not professing the name of Jesus Christ. And then consider that because of that, they have no great high priest. They have no one to approach the holy throne of God on your behalf and my behalf. They have no means through which they might be saved. Jesus is the only way through which we can draw near to Him. And then the writer tells us since He always lives to make intercession for us, I mean, what a beautiful picture we have of Jesus interceding. To intercede is to go on someone's behalf before another. And here is the picture of Jesus going to the throne of God on our behalf. And we've been talking about this as we've been leading up to it in Hebrews that, that Jesus is the one who not only says He will pray, but He prays. Always. It's not like us. How often is that just one of our greetings, our, our sayings we throw out there, a message we type? How, how are you doing? Well, I've got all this going on. Okay, well, I'll pray for you. And then we don't. Or, or maybe we do, but we barely do. Or we say we will and then we forget. We, we neglect to pray so often. But Jesus, the Scripture says, lives forever always making intercession for us. He does this because He's our perfect High Priest. And so as you consider this picture we're giving of Jesus interceding for us, praying for us, it, it reminds us that there's no other name under heaven and earth that we should be going to in prayer. It reminds us that it is not Mary or a saint or a dead relative that we're to pray to. But it is Jesus Christ who is our great High Priest who sits at the right hand of the Father and has direct access to Him. Why would we ever try to approach Him in any other way? It is through Christ and through Christ alone that we are able to have our prayers heard. And yet how often we 
we say or we hear people say, well, of someone who's passed, well, I hope they put in a good word for me. No! Jesus Christ has put in the Word for you. Jesus Christ continues to put in the Word for you. Jesus is always the One who is the Word and stands on your behalf and mine before the Father. Why would we ever attempt to go to God through any other means? And through the One that we are called to go to God through. Jesus is our permanent guarantee and He always lives to intercede for us. Think of what a comfort this is in the Scripture. You may think, well, well, how does Jesus pray for us? Where do you see that? Well, you see it throughout the Scripture. For example, think of the interaction that Jesus has with Peter. And you know the story. Uh, Peter leading up to uh, the, the trial and the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus is the one who, who, who defiantly says, Lord, I'll, I'll never leave You. Lord, I'm going to stand there with You. And, and Jesus warns him about his pride and his arrogance. And in fact, Peter goes on to deny Jesus. But before he does that, do you remember what Jesus says to him? Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. We read that Christ is interceding for Peter. And that before Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And here is Peter about to struggle in his faith, about to fail momentarily in his faith, and it will be recorded for all of salvation history and for us to preach about for decades and centuries to come. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is praying for Peter that he would hold fast. He is praying for Peter to stand firm. He doesn't tell Peter, Peter, listen, Satan's demanded this, but I'm praying for you and I'm overpowering you and you're not going to fail for one second. No, he knows that Peter's going to struggle. And he knows that Peter's going to deny him three times. But he is praying that Peter, for the long run, would stand firm in his faith. And that's exactly what Peter does. Peter, like us, falls now. Peter, like us, succumbs to a temptation. But here we have this beautiful picture that even knowing that will happen, Jesus is praying for Peter to press on in his faith. And oh, does he press on in his faith. As he becomes a great proclaimer of the Gospel, as he becomes one of many foundations in the church that point to the ultimate foundation, Jesus Christ. Friends, if Jesus prays that for Peter, we can take comfort that Jesus is praying that for us. Jesus is praying for you and I today that we would not fail in our faith. And so take comfort. When you get in your car today, after leaving this time of worship, two seconds into your car ride, you start yelling at your kids. When you go home today after this time of Worshiping and with this same tongue in which you praise God, you start cursing a football team on a TV screen. And you go into your work week this week thinking, well, you've got it all figured out and here's how it's going to go. And absolutely nothing goes right. And you just struggle and you fret and you're anxious and you're worried and you're overwhelmed. 
or you sit in that hospital room and you begin to consider why, Lord, why? And one bad thing after another happens to you or somebody you love and it seems that everything in your world is falling apart. Take comfort. Not in me when I say I'm praying for you. And not in others when they say they're praying. Although the body were called to pray for one another. But friend, take comfort that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is interceding for you in that moment. And He is praying that your faith would be strong in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of your lost temper, in the midst of your foul words. He is praying for you and for I. But not just that. We see a picture in John 17 where Jesus prays that high priestly prayer. I would encourage you to take time this Lord's Day to read through John 17. If you want to get a glimpse of how Christ is praying for you today, then read John 17. Because in John 17, you see Jesus praying for those who follow Him and praying for His disciples. And what He prayed then, I have no doubt that it's what He's praying now. You read through John 17, you see verse 11. He's praying that God will keep us, guard us, and secure us. He's praying that we will experience unity among the brethren. Verse 15, he's praying that God would protect us from the evil one. Verse 17, he's praying for our sanctification and our spiritual growth that we would not only read the Word, but we would grow from our time in it. Verse 20, he's praying for us to be fruitful evangelists. We read that earlier during our time of prayer for the offering. He's praying for those who will come to faith through our witness. What what a comfort that is. You know, the reason most of us don't share our faith is because we're scared of the rejection that we're going to get or we're scared that we don't know what to say. And yet, in that moment of fear, what a comfort to know Jesus Christ, our Lord, is praying for us to be a fruitful witness. Verse 24, He's praying for us to hold fast and stand firm that will remain faithful until the day we come into God's kingdom. Verse 26, he's praying that we will love in the same way that God has loved us. And he does these things because he is our guarantor. He is our great high priest who lives always to make intercession for us. And why is he uniquely qualified to do this? Because point four, Jesus is God's perfect provision for our sin. These are God's perfect provision. God's only provision for our sin. This is why it's only through Christ that we can draw near to God. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's not saying my, my religion's better than someone else's. It's saying that this is the only means through which the Creator, Sovereign God of the universe has given us that we might draw near to Him and come to Him. And notice what the writer says about him. Verse 26, Jesus is perfectly qualified because He alone is holy. He's righteous. The the Christian life is not one in which you and I become perfect this side of eternity. It's one in which we trust in Jesus who is perfect and is holy and is righteous and is worthy to enter into God's presence. He says that Jesus is innocent It's significant that we understand why 
God did not just place Jesus on earth for a few days as a 30-something year old man who would then be arrested and tried and crucified and resurrected. It's significant that we consider the incarnation and how Jesus took on flesh and how He lived those 30-something years and how He walked this earth for those 30-something years and He experienced temptations for those 30-something years and yet He was without sin. He did what we failed to do. He did what Adam and Eve in the garden failed to do. He, He is perfectly righteous without sin and therefore perfectly qualified to atone for our sin. He is unstained. The blood of this world is not of His hands. It's His own blood that was shed for us. He's unstained. Jesus is separated from sinners. He was tempted, but He is separated from us in that while He was tempted, He did not sin. We cannot say that. We succumb to temptation. The writer says he's exalted above the heavens. He sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. He is worthy of our worship and praise. Verse 27, he says his sacrifice was sufficient. It was complete. He did it once for all. He wasn't like the priest of old who had to make a sacrifice for themselves because they were sinners before they can make a sacrifice for others who were sinners. It says He made a sacrifice once for all. It is finished. That's why we said last Lord's Day, He's not on the cross anymore. He's risen. He's in glory with the Father because His task is finished. He has paid the debt for sin on our behalf. How foolish for us to think that we're paying that debt through our merit, through our works. The exalted high above the heavens, His sacrifice is sufficient. He has died and risen from the dead. Verse 28 then, we understand that He's greater than the Old Testament priest in every way because He is God's perfect provision. He is our guarantor. And because of this, friends, we can have hope. And we can have hope that when we fail, we have a guarantee. We can have hope that when we fall down, we we have a guarantee. We can have hope that when we have doubts and when we have struggles, we have a guarantee. We have hope because in our weakness, He is strong. And we have a guarantee. I don't know my future any more than I know your future. But I know this. We live in a fallen world and a day will come and has come and maybe is there now for many of you where you will suffer and you are suffering. Where things will befall you and happen to you that you never imagined in a million years would happen. How do you make it through these times? It's not because of your strength. It's not even because of the strength of your faith. We're able to walk through these times because of the absolute, perfect strength of Jesus Christ. He is our great High Priest. And so let's trust in Him and let's walk with Him. If you would, stand together as I pray for us.
Father, we thank You that Jesus indeed is Your perfect, absolute perfect provision for our sin. We thank You, Lord, that we can come to You today through Jesus, that we have access to You, that we can draw near to You through Jesus Christ. But Lord, the reality is that is not true for everyone. And that doesn't become possible before us until, as Romans 10 tells us, we confess that Jesus is Lord until we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. So Lord, if there's any here who who doesn't believe that You did that, if there's any here who's yet to confess Christ as Lord, I pray that You would do a work in their heart through the power of the Holy Spirit to draw them to the truth, to repentance and to faith. And Lord, for the many here who have repented and have trusted in You, I pray that You would encourage us and remind us, Lord, in the days to come that our security is not in this world our security is not in our bank accounts. Our security is not in our profession, in our job, in our career. Our security is not in our health or the health of our loved ones. Our security is in Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So help us to lift His name on high, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.